B.J. Fogg, Ph.D., founded the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University. In addition to his research, Dr. Fogg teaches industry innovators how human behavior really works. He created the Tiny Habits Academy to help people around the world, and interestingly, the Tiny Habits Academy long preceded the Tiny Habits book. He lives in Northern California and Maui. His first book, Persuasive Technology, Using Computers to Change What We Think and Do, foretold how computers could be used to influence our behavior, and even testified to the FTC about how this could be used to the detriment of the public. Clearly, his warnings weren't heard. And this was over 15 years ago. His research then turned to how humans can change our own behaviors, and in December, published the book Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. His behavior research reminds me of the history of vitamin C. So the treatment of scurvy with citrus was discovered by a British barber surgeon around 1600. But citrus fruits didn't become standard on British vessels until about 200 years later. So you can make a discovery that should change the world, but a lot of the work comes in disseminating that information, and Dr. Fogg discovered the keys to changing behavior through changing habits. So for those of you on medical school faculty, this should be a class in medical school. This should actually be taught in high school or even before that. But until then, as physicians, this information is critical, not just for lifestyle changes that can help patients eat better, move more, and smoke less, but even applies to checking their blood pressure and taking their medication. His book kind of reminds me of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. After you hear it, you realize it makes so much sense, and you wonder why you weren't doing it already. The reason is, is because popular wisdom with regards to habits is wrong. Guilt and shame are destructive. There isn't some magic number to starting habits. People don't start habits by feeling badly. They start habits by feeling successful. And we're more likely to be successful by starting a habit that is small or tiny, that we actually want to do. And the third key is a prompt that reminds us that it's time to do the behavior. This is part one. Part two will be out next week, so stay tuned. He was kind enough to already offer another interview, so if you have any questions, please email me at brad at Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at bjfogg, that's with two g's, dot com, and tinyhabits.com. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. BJ Fogg, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Brad, thank you for inviting me. So you're a surfer, so hopefully you'll get the reference here. Uh, there's this movie my, that my wife and I love, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and yeah. there's a scene where Paul Rudd's, Paul Rudd's a surf instructor and Jason Siegel is kind of down on his luck, and, and so Paul Rudd is teaching him to surf. And every time he pops up, Paul Rudd says, do less. Pops up, do less. Pops up, do less. Until Jason Siegel is just lying on his belly, and then he says, <laughs> well, now you're not doing anything. So, and I, I feel like that's an analogy between that and how people might interpret tiny habits. So yeah. why is that not the case? Why is it different than yeah. doing, you know, lying on the surfboard versus just getting up and riding that wave? Yeah, I love that reference. It, it's really two things coming together at the same time. Number one, 
it's not just doing small things, it's doing the right small things. In other words, elegance. Uh, the way I think about it, what's the smallest thing with the biggest impact? And yes, when you're surfing, you don't want a lot of uh, extraneous movements going on. You just do the right small things. And in fact, here in Maui, that's kind of, yes, you can catch the waves. But part of it is to be so graceful and so minimal while you're riding the board doing cool things. So it's like the right small things. That's one factor when it comes to habits and the tiny habits method that I'm sure we'll get into is how do you find that? The other thing in the tiny habits method in my research is just acknowledging and recognizing that motivation fluctuates over time. And Brad, what was so, what's so strange about the research on motivation historically, I mean, there's been social scientists studying human behavior systematically for, let's say, 100 years, maybe 80 years. There has not been a rich tradition of looking at how motivation fluctuates over time. That's a relatively new construct in the literature. And I would peg it about 2007, where the first studies emerged and it was in language learning, like, oh, students... Students' motivation in the classroom goes up and down during the period of the classroom. So, and so it's sort of like, so without having a solid history, a tradition of understanding that motivation goes up and down, that's a huge blind spot. And so in Tiny Habits, that's, and in my work, that's fully acknowledged. It's like, even though the moment your patient's meeting with you as a doctor, that patient's super motivated and she or he will think they can do anything, but guess what? few days later, it's going to drop even maybe after they walk out the office. So the only thing you can do when your motivation is low is things that are really easy. You can't do the big things anymore. So tiny habits is hacking or tapping into that reality is that your motivation won't always be high. And the way that you be consistent with a habit is you make it super, super easy to do. So that it doesn't get derailed by your fluctuations in motivation. So number one, Elegance, the right small things. Number two, just face reality of being human is your motivation is going to fluctuate. This wasn't exact. I didn't exactly include this in, in the questions that I sent to you, but I think that ties in well to like even taking antibiotics, right? Patients yeah. frequently do not finish their course of the antibiotics. Well, they start off taking them because they're super motivated because they feel like crap, right? You've got a urinary tract infection, you've got a sinus infection, you are uncomfortable. So you're super motivated. But by the end, you're kind of feeling better. So you might forget. And so so that I think we can go into the fog behavior model because that 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 applies well that applies to everything but but in this there situation so many, <laughs> there are so many exciting things to talk about right within that question wow where should we start guide me there's just so many so well what's the fog behavior model let's talk about that okay. it looks Bam. like an equation not total not not yeah. as an equation so, so it turns out i wouldn't have known this believed this even 20 years ago there is a very simple way for understanding all behavior of all people and all cultures and so on and it goes like this a behavior happens when three things come together at the same time. And I write it out as behavior equals. It's not really an equation. It's a model. So behavior happens when motivation to do the behavior and ability to do the behavior comes together with a prompt. A prompt is a reminder or a cue. When those three things come together, the behavior happens. If any one of those things is missing, the behavior doesn't happen. So if M, A, or P is zero, yes, it's not a model, but you can think of it this way. If M, A, or P is zero, then the behavior is zero. 
So that that's the way to understand behavior really is that simple. And it maps to all types of behavior, all ages and so on. Now, in the world of behavior, you have one-time behaviors like uh, make an appointment with your doctor or get trained. You've got like antibiotics, a fixed term behavior. I call that a span behavior. And then you have ongoing behaviors like, oh, you're going to take um, this medication forever. And then you have stopping behaviors. So within that, within the broad world of behaviors, you've got all the way from habits to stopping habits to one time and B equals MAP applies to all of them. So I think with the that antibiotic example at the beginning, M is very high because you're motivated. A, ability, you're swallowing a pill. Like, fine, for some people, they have difficulty swallowing a pill, but that's always going to be easy. Although there are some ways you can make it even easier, right? Yeah. Uh, and I've, yeah. I've heard, you know, it was in your book, I've heard you talk about another podcast where, you know, you, you want to keep it in a place where it's super accessible, right? Make it even easier. Super easy, yeah. And then the last one is is the prompt. And I think this is the key. Because that's the part that we usually leave out. It's the part that may not be as intuitive as as the other two, right? So yeah. the prompt telling you that it's time to do it. So for someone taking antibiotics, maybe tell them at a specific point in their day when they can do it. Yeah. You know, it, in all of my work, it's all a system. I love systems. I love, and and it's not like an artificial system. This is how behavior really works. And over the course of 10 years, I've uncovered the system and then I articulate it in my book, Tiny Habits, and in the trainings I do and so on. So yeah, motivation to take. Now if motivation to take the antibiotic drops to zero, they won't do it, even if it's easy and there's a prompt. So there's gotta be you know, some awareness and I'm not a doctor, but hey, guess what? You're damaging the future potential for this antibiotic by not completing this, right? So, and not all patients know that. Do all patients care about it? Let's hope so, but they may not. But there's other ways to sustain motivation through that. What is it, two weeks that you take an antibiotic, something like that? Yeah, could be anywhere. Then ability. So even if the motivation drops, if it's super easy, like you're saying, like it's right there in the counter, you don't have to open anything, or then boom. And then the often missing piece is the prompt. What's going to remind you to do this? In Tiny Habits, like every part of behavior with prompts, there's and the system behind it. One, you can just rely on people just self-prompt, which is a bad idea, like just suddenly remember. Two, you can have people use what I call a context prompt. And that's really common. That's like post-it notes, alarms, have your husband remind you, and so on. And then three is to use an existing routine to be your prompt. So every time you start the coffee maker, that becomes your reminder to take the antibiotic. Now, if it were if this were an ongoing habit that people do forever, Brad, then using a context prompt is great because then you just figure where does this new medication behavior fit into my existing routine and you don't have alarms and post-its. But for something that's fixed term or one time, then yeah, having an alarm or a post-it note or something like that is okay. So one of the points here is all behavior comes back to motivation, ability, prompt, but it depends on the behavior type and how you design successfully for that. Designing for a one-time behavior is very different than designing get a habit to happen. And this middle ground around a fixed term, like a two-week behavior, that 
has characteristics on both sides. And so what's exciting is to see it all comes back to this motivation ability prompt, but then it's like tinker toys. You assemble it differently depending on what the behavior type is. I think anyone who's been to a hospital knows that alarms don't really work well in the long term because you hear all this beeping going on that's being ignored. So yeah, it it just becomes white noise after a while. Uh, Are there any prompts that you've come across that also kind of like the alarms might only work well in the short term or or not work at all? Ones that we should, that maybe our patients might say, oh, you know, I could use this. And as it turns out, aren't great ideas. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) There's so much I want to share. I, I guess I would have people think about it this way and we can go deeper if you want. If, I mean, if it's a temporary behavior, then, you know, using an alarm is fine. But if it's a habit, absolutely do not use an alarm or a post-it note because you'll become blind to that. And the times when the alarm goes off where it's not convenient, as opposed to something very specific in your tune, like pushing start on the coffee maker, you might do that at 4.30 in the morning. You might do. You might sleep in to 5.35 or you might sleep into nine o'clock, but there's a point every morning where you probably start the coffee maker. And then it's like, oh, after I start the coffee maker. So it's, it's this very, not only does it not annoy you with all these post-its or alarms, but it also adapts to whatever's happened to your schedule that day. And this is one of the hacks in Tiny Habits is, don't use external reminders. Figure out where it fits and find what it comes after. You know, look at your existing routine and where does this new habit naturally come after? And if you find where it fits quite naturally, it just is seamless. It's like you just plug it in to your this, then this, then this, and boom, you're off and running and habits can that's one reason that habits can form very, very quickly in the tiny habits method. I think the surfing analogy works. I actually surf on Long Island. It's not, you know, they're like four <laughs> foot waves, maybe if there's a hurricane, but then I'm not out there. But I think the surfing analogy works there too, right? Because it just seems effortless. Like the people that really know what they're doing, you look at them on their board and they're so relaxed and they're so, and everything just runs so smoothly. Yeah. So if you can find it, integrate it into a place where it then becomes effortless, it's really hard to, to ignore that prompt. Yeah. And you, you make the distinction between like the trailing edge of, of the yeah. prompt and the prompt itself. So you wouldn't make it like after you, you're, when you're drinking your coffee, because that's a long span of time. It's something right. very specific, like you push the button on your coffee maker. So it has to be, or it works better when it's a specific prompt. When it's very specific. Yeah. So in the tiny habits, there's a a format that we call a recipe, tiny habits recipe format. So it's after I start the coffee maker, I will take my medication or after I brush my teeth, I will floss one tooth. And, And what you do is you design that recipe And if it works, you keep going. If it doesn't, you redesign. Now, often it won't work if this, what we call an anchor, it's the existing thing you do. If you say, after breakfast, I will take my medication. What we've learned through our research on tiny habits is that is so ambiguous and fuzzy. It's like, at what moment in time is after breakfast? So you use the term, uh, and thank you for that. So you find the trailing edge. So you look at your breakfast routine and say, what is the very, very end of breakfast. Oh, 
I start the dishwasher. Okay, then that, rather than saying after breakfast, I will, you say after I start the dishwasher, I will you know, feed the cat or whatever it is. And even the slight shift like that can take a habit design from not working to working. And that's part of what we teach in the Tiny Habits Method and the Tiny Habits Coaches is look at people's recipes and help them. And that's why I called it a recipe rather than a formula or a template. I decided to call it Tiny Habits Recipe to give people, hopefully, permission that you revise it. You revise it to work better for you, just like you would a recipe. And I think giving people permission to do that, right? Because typically the typical tropes of exercise more, eat better, move more, right? That we're all trying to do do more of. There's all this guilt associated with not doing it. So I think by describing it that way, you're also giving them permission. Like explore, see what works for you. The first couple of times you do it, it's not that you're going to have to refine this. Like you're giving them permission. So maybe you're also cutting down on some of that negative talk, that ine- that's negative self-talk that, that yeah, comes along with ra- it. It's a radical shift in mindset. Uh, the tiny habits versus the old way. So just to be really clear, (laughs) it's going to be controversial. Most of, and I've had physicians come work with me at my boot camps and stuff. And I remember some from Kaiser Permanente after the first day, they were like, oh my gosh, BJ, we get one class in medical school on this. And this is what we do all day, every day. Thank you so much. We need this so bad. So kind of Good Thank you. That it. validates my entire podcast because that is <laughs> that is the point of my podcast is everything that we should have been learning but didn't learning didn't learn. And yes, the understanding the metabolism, understanding fat metabolism, and memorizing all the enzymes not nearly as important as actually being able to help someone to institute change. Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. So one of the things, bad news and good news. I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is what. Our Western culture says about behavior change, what you see in magazines, most of it when it comes to behavior change is wrong or it doesn't work or it only works for people who are already going to CrossFit, okay? Unusual people. And so one of the best things you can do is just try to forget all of that stuff and don't apply it. Guess what? You don't have to actually set goals to change behavior. You don't actually have to be accountable to change behavior. Those things can help, but you don't have to do those things. The good news is I've condensed what actually works. And let me give it at the highest level. And then we can get down, if you want, into some of the details. At the highest level, here's what, if you're helping people design for lasting change. So again, within the world of behavior, there's all sorts of behavior types, creating habits, lasting change, ongoing engagement. I'm going to use those as synonyms. There are two keys to that. One, number one, help people do what they already want to do. So help your patients do what they already want to do. If you don't do that, it does not work. You you all know this because you've been there. Next, help people feel successful. And if you do those two things, you've got a really great chance of creating lasting change. If you miss on either one, I guarantee the change will not last. So what you can't do is force people or somehow manipulate people into doing things they don't want to do. That does not work. And number two, so I call these maxims. That's maxim number one, help people do what they already want to do, which is like 20 years ago, I would never believe that would be like so important. It's massively important. It sounds like something Yogi Berra would have said. 
Right? <laughs> it's like it's like, a, it's like a truism. You can get people to do what they already want to do, but it yeah. But surprisingly, they're not already doing it. So yes. you help people do what they already want to do, and the maxim number two is help people feel successful. And those two things together, I mean, that's the secret sauce for designing for lasting change. Now, there's techniques to do each one well, but that's what you're shooting for. So any change program that is not doing those two things will not work to create lasting change. So you can just use those as lenses or litmus tests of here's this change program, or here's this thing, will it help me in my life or my family or my patients? And just, and that's why setting goals sometimes does not help people feel successful because by setting the goal, especially if it's ill-formed, all they do is feel unsuccessful. I'm not achieving my goal. That's why accountability is a mixed bag because for some people to report in, I miss this, I miss this, it's not helping them feel successful. Now, for some people, well, but I just want to call that out that it's not about these techniques like uh, accountability buddy or don't miss two days or whatever. It's these high level principles that, and it's not only for your personal behavior change or your patients, every product or service. So part of the teaching I do is for people that are creating products and services to change behavior, everything that's gone big and lasted over time does these two things, you know, so uh, Instagram, helping people do what they already want to do, helping people feel successful. And one of the founders was one of your students, right? Yeah. One of the co-founders is in my class. And the idea for it came up in my class. And this is before I had all the dark sides associated. It was very uh, earnest and uplifting concept in the early days, for sure. So yeah, just a way to share, share yourself without, without all the baggage. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, if people listening to this don't remember anything else, in fact, it's more important than my behavior model. It's those two concepts. And I'll just translate. Help your patients do what they already want to do. Help your patients feel successful. I, and I think it's important to make distinction also between what they actually want to do, not what they want to want to do. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. if they're someone who wants to want to exercise, but they don't actually want to exercise, they're they're not going to do that. So you have to, you know, start from a place like pick an activity that they already enjoy that might not be exercise. It might be gardening or dancing or something along those lines. Like, what do you enjoy doing? Like when you're starting that conversation, what do you enjoy doing? Not like, what's your favorite workout routine or, you know, absolutely. And that is so important. And I know that takes time during a clinical visit and there's some ways to compress that, that I think we'll get to, but yeah, for sure that now, sometimes now we're going to like level. So my work is modular and there's ways that I think about it in modules. So I'm popping up to the 300 level. Sometimes there's a behavior they must do like take a medication that they don't love taking the medication. So you need to align it with an aspiration that is very, very meaningful to them. Like by taking this medication, you will be here to see your granddaughter get married and walk down the aisle. But ideally, to your point, Brad, is find an exercise they already love. So they love surfing and they love roller skating and that helps them also be healthier. But if you can't do that, and you make really clear the connection between taking the medication and something that's deeply meaningful to them. So you had mentioned uh, the your flossing experiment uh, earlier, <laughs> which which I actually had brought up to my dentist 
I didn't even realize it was it was well before the book came out. I didn't even because re- I'd been hearing about your research for for a long time. So I told my dentist, you know, what if you told your patients to just floss one tooth? What if you told? And she said, well, I just tell my patients to floss if they don't want their teeth to fall out. Yeah. So that yeah. you know that I think harkens to the older way of thinking of like, it's their responsibility. It's not my responsibility. Like they can, here's the antibiotic. I'm giving you the tools. Um, you can do it on your own. Yeah. So this is, I think a little more metaphysical question. Like why is that, why doesn't that approach work? Why doesn't yeah, I mean, eat better or you're going to die work? Well, let me map it to the behavior model and then we'll get into things that are a little more conceptual. So the, the tiny habit recipe of after I brush, I will floss one tooth. What it's done is taken flossing and it's made it easier to do. So it's taken the ability factor and made it so easy that even when my motivation is elsewhere, I can still floss one tooth and I can still feel like I'm the kind of person who flosses. The hygienist or the dentist, I forgot what you said, result like, oh, just only floss the teeth you want to keep. That's a motivational approach. So notice the difference here. And this is kind of the old school of thinking. Even the phrase motivate behavior change where people think that's all encompassing. No, you can facilitate behavior change. You can prompt behavior change and motivate behavior change if it's a one-time action or temporary, but not for habits because over time our motivation shifts. So that will work. She or he can effectively scare a small percentage of people into doing it because like, oh my gosh, but human nature, just human beings, our motivation goes up and down. And then we have these motivations to do other things. Like in the moment that, you know, morning, we're getting ready for homeschool, my kid's screaming, I can't floss my teeth right now, right? Because we get motivated to do other things. So it's just not And so in the book, Tiny Habits, I call this the motivation monkey. And I'm sorry to monkeys because I love monkeys, but there wasn't a good another alliteration phrase for that. I was going to call it motivation monster. Motivation marmoset doesn't work quite as um, well. Maybe we'll do that in the paperback version. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just unreliable. You can't rely on high levels of motivation. And that's part of just what I acknowledge as a researcher and then in the Tiny Habits method is If you want to be reliable doing a habit, don't rely on motivation. Design it so it doesn't require much motivation. One thing, Brad, let me add this. But then in tiny habits, you can always do more. You don't just stop at one tooth. If you want to do all your teeth, terrific. If you want to do 20 push-ups rather than two, terrific. So you you set the bar super low, and that's all you have to do is one tooth. And anytime you want to do more, you can. And you think of it as extra credit. And notice the shift there. What you're doing is you're helping people feel successful. It's like, man, I flossed all my teeth. I'm a superstar. I'm an A-plus student, right? So by setting the bar low, you're setting people up to feel successful, which then, and we measure this week after week in Tiny Habits, helps people change their identity. Oh, I'm the kind of person who cares about my teeth. I'm the kind of person who can follow through and change my behavior. I'm the kind of person who achieves, which would not have happened if the bar were high. That happens when people feel successful. So there's so many, they're subtle. And once you just look around your life, what your kids do and so on, you'll see how these principles play out. 
but it goes so against the traditional wisdom, the old way of thinking about behavior change. I feel like everybody is is waiting for the epiphany, right? <laughs> everybody is waiting for that moment where they're going to be like that person on the cover of the magazine that suddenly had a mindset shift and they were a different person. And, and, and uh, you know, there's a movie, I think, on Netflix about a guy who goes across the country blending all of his food and showing everybody how they should juice or something like that. But yeah. he had like an epiphany. He had a moment. And we're all hoping that the next thing. And so I, I have patients like that, right? Where I might recommend the tiny habits methodology to them, right? I might describe the, the fog behavior model, but they're like, no, 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 I'm telling you, I'm telling you. And so they're it's so motivated. Sure. It's time for sure. Brad. This is going to work. How do I, I don't want to deflate their balloon, right? I yeah. don't want to take away from that motivation, but I also don't want them to end in that feeling of shame and failure that seems to keep happening and yet the process keeps repeating. So how do I convince them? Perfect question. And and there's so much in my book, but this is not in my book, okay? So good question. I call this a dual track strategy. The dual track is, yeah, if they want to do something big, you let them, let them knock it, try to knock it out of the park. But oh, and by the way, let's just do this tiny thing and by doing this tiny thing, you're going to learn the skills of change. And yeah, it might seem insignificant, but let's do both, right? So yeah, you don't want to make them feel like you haven't heard them or you're being unresponsive and they're super eager and just say, yeah, give it a shot, but also let's do this tiny thing um, and just you know get you to tidy one thing or to eat you know this healthy snack or sometimes just floss one tooth or do one wall push-up. And in that way, you get both at once. So you do a dual track strategy. And most people will absolutely fail on the what I call a big leap. Uh, but if the baby step is designed well, if it's designed with the tiny habits method, they'll succeed on it. And when they come back, they're like, oh, you know what? My walking two hours a day didn't work. But guess what? I'm flossing all my teeth and I'm great. And I've done, oh, and by the way, thanks to that, I'm doing a lot more. You know, because so, that's how it works. These, these, these tiny successes open the door to lots more. And I, there, there are two reasons I really love that. One is you, you mentioned the identity shift. And so when you have that identity shift, you can be like, you know, you start thinking about yourself differently, like a runner. Why does a runner run? A runner runs because they're a runner, right? And so then they find time. And they, it, running doesn't need to be a habit because they look for opportunities to do it. So once that identity shift happens, I feel like everything else becomes, becomes so much more smooth. Right. Yes. And from the beginning, the tiny habits method, when I launched it, I was playing around with my own behavior for a year in about 2010. And then I was like, this is so easy and so effective. Crazy. I'm going to start sharing it, which I did in 2011. And as I was in this five day program and it was free and it's still out there and it's still free and it's better than it was because I, we have a weekly meeting on it. We always try to make it better. But from the beginning, the program really was about increasing people's confidence that they could change their self-efficacy. But I don't talk about it in those terms. It's like confidence. And so the first evaluation question, so people do it Monday through Friday, and then they evaluate how things went over the weekend. The first one is about how confident do you feel you know, about change? And that's what I looked at and optimized the program for. In other words, I didn't care and still don't care. Like the first 
time they try tiny habits, I don't care what habit they pick. It's just like, if I'm teaching you to play the piano, I don't care what your first song is. It might be Mary Had a Little Lamb. Because you're going to step up and do bigger and better things. The first thing you do is just a training ground. You know, you're just learning the basics. So pick whatever you want. But what I do, what I do think is very, very important in the program that's optimized for is to change people's perception away from, oh, I can't change to, oh my gosh, I can change. I can follow through. I, I can create habits. And that is a general quality they can apply. And we see in our research, they apply it to all sorts of, I mean, that's where you change people. Whether people floss or not is a minor thing. But when people start thinking, I'm the kind of person who can change, I'm the kind of person who can follow through, that then opens the door to transformation. I have to put out an apology to all the dentists that might be in the audience. Flossing, he didn't mean that. Flossing is important, guys. Flossing is important. No, it is. Okay, like, I (laughs) I am like, I am like, you know, because if you can learn to floss using the tiny habits method, you can apply that to everything else. So in the book, I talk about flossing. It's a common example. It's a it's a it's a really good thing because it really there's some motivation there, but it fluctuates. Ability you can make it easier, and then there's a very clear natural context prompt, which is brushing. Flossing is like the poster child of tiny habits. And if you floss, you're probably also the type of person who makes their bed, and you're probably also the type of person that has a clean desk and has an organized schedule. And I feel like you know, you like you said, you start thinking about yourself differently. It seems like almost a a back end way of altering negative self talk, which we see a lot of. Right, a lot of people have these these uh, they they have these negative things. I think the saying is, if you talk to your friends the way you talked about yourself, the way you talk to yourself, you wouldn't have any friends. And so you're then, by making them, increasing their confidence and their ability to change, the self-talk has to follow. Yeah, and and Brad, that in sharing the method for the first, I would say, 2,000 people. So now it's, I stopped counting at 40,000 people after about eight years. So in the first year, 2,000 people, there was a woman who wrote me back midweek, she was three days into the program, it was Wednesday, said, oh my gosh, BJ, you've changed my life. I now see I'm the kind of person that had endured a lifetime of self-trash talk. And thanks to you and thanks to how Tiny Habits positions things, I've recognized that. And now I'm saying good for me rather than self-trash talk. And that that is that shift is so important. And we don't leave it to chance in Tiny Habits. That's very deliberate. I didn't know that going in when I was first teaching it. It was took, her name actually was Linda, but in the book, we changed it to Rhonda because Linda is my sister, a different Linda. So it would have been confusing, yes. Confusing. So in the book, she's called Rhonda. And that was a huge moment. I, I can remember, I'm getting chills talking about this because I can remember exactly. So I was, you know, I coached through email. So I'd coach two to 300 people per week through email, very labor intensive. And I remember exactly where I was sitting and looking at it and just going and recognizing that just, it just dawned on me, this is where people are at. This is not the kind of people that are around me at Stanford and Silicon Valley. And it's not really how I grew up. This is a normal person. I am not normal. The people at Stanford are not normal. And then from then on, I read and interacted with people understanding this is where they're at. They're beating themselves up. They're feeling just so inadequate. And that's why throughout the book, I say, 
Well, at the very beginning, I say, if you've tried to change and failed, it's not your fault. You just weren't given the right system. And throughout the book, it's like you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. So feelings of guilt and shame are not helpful. They're not part of, you can set those aside. So you embrace and you help yourself feel good about even the tiniest of successes. And then when things don't go as you'd intended, you just let it go. You, you just don't ruminate on that. And that shift and then people actively learn how to give themselves positive feedback rather than the self-trash talk and that just that just ripples out to so many other aspects of your life it's just if there's just one thing i could wish that my work i mean if only one thing it would be that that people are nice to themselves that they stop beating themselves up and they acknowledge their successes and i'm using all those as kind of the same thing in different words it's just that that in some ways that's what the subtitle's about the small changes that change everything that is seen it is a small change but it changes everything when you view yourself differently and your inner dialogue is different than it was before remember this is part one of two so stay tuned as the second half will air next week That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.